This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome, everybody. We are good to go. So tonight we're learning the Lunishmat to Avraham ben Chaim Yehuda and Yechezkel ben Abraham. So tonight, Bezat Hashem, we're going to be discussing Emunas Chachamim, or Emunat Chachamim. This is, uh, the literal translation for this is trust in uh, in the sages, like having uh, faith, if you could call it, or trust in the in the leaders and the rabbis. Now, where this issue comes into play and where people sort of a lack of this trust, we can really separate this into, into kind of two categories. So category number one is somebody who never had trust to begin with, and most likely because they misunderstood what this concept means. Category number two is where somebody had, they had this trust, but then they lost it for whatever reason. And I want to discuss a little bit on that second aspect before we delve into understanding what Emunah Chachamim actually entails and what it is. So we, we know that nowadays with the freedom of speech and the, you know, the idea that everybody can have an opinion and everybody should have an opinion and every opinion matters and everything, all those lovely things and opinions. I would like to tell you one thing and make this you know, as clear, as simple as can be. Yes, everybody can have an opinion, but no, not every opinion counts. And let me explain that before you get all angry and upset. So if you have somebody who is a uh, specialist, and that means that, the, what is a specialist? Someone that did a lot of research, knows a lot about the subject, either studied about it for, you know, extensively, um, preferably that they got tested on the subject, and then they come out to be a specialist on the subject. And this specialist, pick whatever subject that you want. They come to a certain conclusion. And then you have somebody else, contestant number two, let's call this person. And this contestant number two, maybe they read a book. Most likely they watched some sort of YouTube video. And then all of a sudden, they become a specialist also. And they become with their own opinion. Who are you going to go to listen to? Who is the one that you should listen to? Somebody who has studied extensively on the matter or somebody who just pretends to know something or thinks that they know somebody? To get make this example a little bit clearer, let's say you need to go to a doctor, not a regular doctor, a specialist, a, I don't know, endocrinologist, let's just give up off the top of my head. Um, uh, you have to go to an endocrinologist. You need to go to some sort of specialist or better yet, some sort of pediatric surgeon. Let's take it a, a notch a little bit higher, more uh, of, a, of a specialty. A pediatric endocrinologist, you know, blah, 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 add a few other uh, fancy terms uh, to that. Who are you going to go to ask around? Are you going to start looking on, uh, you know, different uh, YouTube videos or online? Who is the person? Or are you going to go to your doctor or to other doctors in the field and say, who do you recommend to be the best in the field? Now, logic states that what? That you go to the somebody who knows. So you go to a doctor and the doctor will go and recommend you to other doctors that or specialists in the field. You know, assuming that it's not their specialty, they, you know, there's usually people that are known not to be top of their field. And who decides this? The doctor decides this. And by the way, just as like a side point, how do you get a gadoladar? Like, how do you get a title? There's no test that you take to become a gadoladar. What's a gadoladar? Gadoladar is also in Lahabdil. It's it's a similar aspect where you have huge chachamim, huge talmidei chachamim, huge rabbis that they all go and they all acknowledge that this particular rabbi he's on the highest level of of everybody else. Similar again, lahabdil to like a doctor who you have somebody and everybody recognize that this doctor is at the top of their field in, in whatever area that they're dealing with. So when you want to go and find out which specialist you need to go to, you find a doctor and then you ask that doctor, okay, who do you recommend? And they would recommend. They're in the field. This is something that they study. This is something that they know. 
this is what who they will go and they would recommend and then you could uh, obviously um, you know take their word for it. The way that it used to be is people used to have an opinion and that's fine. You had your own opinion. You're 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 supposed to have your own opinion. And, but it generally stayed to your own opinion, to your friend's opinions. Oh, that's it over there. But nowadays, this has gone to a whole different level. Now, everybody who has a computer all of a sudden is a blogger. And everybody who has a video camera is all of a sudden a specialist, a rabbi, a priest, a doctor, and everything. Oh, don't even get me started on vaccines, uh, you know, specialists. Everybody knows everything. Why? Because I read a blog over there and I found a YouTube clip that I was able to listen for 35 seconds before I spaced out and I watched something else about a cat running in a circle. And now I'm a specialist. So now I know now you have to listen to me because I know everything and I'm always right and never wrong because my mother always told me I'll be the best president in the world and I'm a president. <gasps> And this is where we're getting our information from. Like, we have to stop for a second. Who is the specialist? Now, where am I getting to this? You know, before I get to my point, let's let's take another detour. Uh, something I've never understood um, is, is why people uh, get their political advice from TV and movie stars. Like, this is beyond my understanding. And... I, again, I don't want to get too much in the hole on this because I, this is my own thoughts. I may be wrong in this very likely, but for my the way that I see things, and especially in America, why are more people democratic or, or – well, I can't say more people because, I mean, it happens to be they're kind of in a balance if you look at the polls in the previous uh, um, you know election. But why do you have a lot of people that vote uh, you know, for a certain area, for certain political parties? It's not because they know anything. It's really, it's really a shame because most people, most people, I, I, this is just the way the nature is. The nature of people is most people are followers. There's a few people that are leaders and most people are followers. Now, who are you going to follow? So, you know, you have the media. So one, if you're controlling the media, it's sort of like, think about it if somebody is able to hypnotize you and can convince you whatever it is that you want. And really, that's what the media is nowadays. They're able to convince us or, or tell us what to think, what to buy, what to do, who to vote for, and so on and so forth. So you have people that what they do for a living is memorize lines and say it. And what's considered someone who's really good? Yes, they can be talented. I'm not saying they're not talented. I'm not saying that it's easy. I know, you know, difficult, whatever, if you're in, in the acting world or whatever it is, you know, whatever. You know, like, I'm not getting into that whole field. But that's your field. Your field is acting. You're not a political advisor. Why is it that when the time of the elections came, we're all listening to, like, okay, so what does the movie star have to say? What does the TV star have to say? Who cares? What do they know about anything? Like, like literally, okay, maybe some of them are educated. Maybe some of them, uh, you know, read a paper or two, but that's not who you go for your advice. You go for your advice for the specialists in the field, the people that deal with this all day. When you have to go to a doctor, you're not going to ask your movie star friend, oh, which doctor I should go to. No, you ask another doctor who's been in the field. So what happens to this, there's, there's, there, there's a lot of information out there. And the information that is coming out is very, very often... I, I want to say neglected uh, because that's the nice way of saying it, but really it's wrong information is coming out there. And and just to branch on a slightly other very, very bumpy detour that I don't want to go too far off is regarding conspiracy theories. There, there was always conspiracy theories. It's not something new. The moon landing was a fake. That's a famous one. You know, the government killed JFK. 9-11 was an inside job. The Flat Earth Society. I don't know if you've heard about this wonderful group of people, uh, but this is where um, uh, they, they strongly believe that there is, uh, the, the Earth is flat and stationary. It's not a rotating Earth. It's a flat, flat Earth. That's it. 
Um, uh, there's also a very, very fascinating conspiracy theory that the moon isn't real. It, it's only a projection. Yeah, I couldn't believe it either when I thought of it, when I when I heard about this. But yeah, they and this is goes hand in hand. Uh, the the flat Earth, uh, you know, followers kind of uh, hold very strongly on this thing that it's a projection. I don't know where they think has enough power to go and project this moon uh, for for half half of a month and uh, waxing and waning. But whatever, this is what they believe. And and to take a step further, to make it a little bit more personal, there is a very very large group of people that deny the Holocaust. These are, it's a Holocaust, uh, that's a conspiracy, it would never happen. There were 6 million Jews that were killed. And not only that, the Holocaust is one of the best documented events in history. The, the Nazis were meticulous on their, on their documentation. And yet you still have people that don't believe it. Even though it's documented, even though there's proof, even though there's everything, they still don't believe it. And this whole idea of conspiracies, it's only gaining more and more traction. It blow, it's blowing up today like never before. Never before do we have all this, the, as much conspiracies as we have nowadays, to my understanding. Now, with all this conspiracies and with all this fake news, uh, people tend to lose trust. They lose trust. And sometimes, rightfully so. Uh, you know, I, I can't blame them. After all that you see that goes on, how do you blame, you know, a news network that are proven time and time again that they're wrong and they're, they're, they're producing news that it's on the angle that they want to? So why should you start trusting anybody anymore? Now, with that mindset, with that understanding, let's shift a little bit and deal a little bit with, with Rabbanim, with rabbis. What happens? You have people that talk bad about Rabbanim. So generally, who are these types of people? Usually, again, not always, but usually these are people that don't believe in God, let's say, or were religious, went off religious. So again, all of a sudden, they become a specialist. They write a blog, they write, put out a video, they speak at this, uh, whatever, you know, these different publications that are coming out there, and the movies are coming out there, and documentaries are coming out there, all these things, because all of a sudden they know everything about everything, because I lived through it, and I know everything. Really, they know nothing, but pretend to know everything. So what happens when you start speaking bad about somebody? So even if you don't believe it, even if you go and you don't believe it, and you, you don't, so l- let me give you a scenario. Let's say uh, you're talking to somebody, and somebody accidentally slips out. Uh, you know that person, uh, Mr. A? Yeah, they have a huge anger issue. And you're thinking, about like, really, Mr. A? Has, it's so funny because I know him for like seven, eight hundred years, and I've never seen him get angry once. And I thought, oh, yeah, he has an anger issue. And still, you know, it's weird. I always thought it was just the opposite. He was so patient, so kind, so calm, so collected. You know, like, I've never seen that. And you don't agree with it. You don't accept what the person just told you. But it's in the back of your mind. It's, it's there. Fast forward two, three years. And, you know, you're driving down the street. And all of a sudden, you see Mr. A cut somebody off and looks like in a very, very stern look and be like, oh, I knew it. Here's his anger problem coming out. I knew it all along. All along, I knew that he had a, he had an issue. Be like, wait, well, you've never seen an issue before. And what happened? Now, something got in his contact, so he was squinting, and he was trying to rush to the red light, so he should be able to fix his contact. But really, what? because in your mindset, somebody told you way back that, oh, this guy's anger personality, it's very hard to take that out of your mind. 
So what happens is that even if you hear something that's false, that's wrong, that's incorrect, it stays with you. It stays with This is why, this is not one of the reasons, but one of the many reasons why Roshan Ara, uh, you know, Rechilas, Maitzi Shema, all these things are so, are, are like, even if you say like, no, no, I was just joking, I think it's very hard to take back something negative that you say about somebody else because it, it resides, it sort of lays dormant inside that person's brain and then it will pop up at whatever time in the future and that could cause some drastic... Uh, and, and radical changes in the way that the person interacts with the other person. So when you're dealing with people that go and they speak bad about everything else, you tend to go and you tend to start to, you know, it, it starts settling in. It starts, you know, coming in. It starts believing in, in a little bit of a manner, even though there's no essence, there's no, there's no foundation to it. So because our society, we, we have this lack of trust and, uh, um, I don't want to say only government, but it's it's anybody in a higher level than you. There's always a lack of trust. There's always a it's a weird. There's a little bit of a paranoia that that falls in so many people. You know, I used to think that it's only you know a certain group of people have this certain paranoia that when someone's talking to, you know in the in the distance and they're looking at you, they're talking about you. Um, you know, but the truth of the matter is, the more that I speak to people, the more I see that it's no, it's like a rampant. This is like a major situation. Like people are are, are in a mindset where the People on the higher out to get them. People on the higher out to control them. People on and this is where the conspiracies come in, and this is where the lack of trust comes in, and all this comes in together. This also has an effect on your Jewish life, and that's why I feel this topic is so important nowadays. Maybe even more so that that it was, you know, a few years ago. We're we have to understand the importance of emunas hachamim, the trust in our sages, the trust in our leaders. The Tefer Shlomo goes and brings down that Emunah Sachamim is one of the most fundamental principles of our faith. And if a Jew does not believe in Sadiqim, this is what he goes, it's crazy, this is such a like a hard, like I can only quote it from Tefer Shlomo. He says, a Jew who doesn't believe in Sadiqim should not consider himself a Jew. That's the level that the Tefer Shlomo goes and brings down. And, you know, it's really a shame because the righteous, these righteous people, the holy Sadiqim, they have, there's an avenue of relief. Their blessing, their guidance is more powerful than we can imagine. The idea of understanding what is Emunah Sachamim. So the Gemara Ksubis, page 103b, goes and says that, you know, Tzadik Gezer HaKadosh Baruch Mekayim. When a Tzadik decrees, Hashem fulfills that decree. You understand that level? That when you have somebody that works on themselves their whole life, reaches to such a high level of purity, they have the power to, in, in a certain, obviously in a certain extent, that when they make a blessing, when they bless somebody, when they decree something, that God will go and even 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 if it requires a miracle, will change reality to make that blessing come true. And the Gemara Mo'od Katim in 16b goes, and furthermore, it says that Tzaddik has the power to annul a, a, a divine decree. Is it, there's a crazy power that God, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, gave to the Tzaddikim. Now, when, when Hashem created the world, he dispersed the neshamas, he dispersed the souls of all the righteous people in every throughout the generations, throughout the ages. And each generation has a select few of very, very holy, righteous people until the coming of Mashiach. Are, these are the leaders of the generation. These are the holy peoples of the generation. Their powers are unfathomable. The, the powers that they, that they have, obviously they are the most humble state possible, so they don't you know, express the powers that they have or even maybe even know the extent of what their powers have, but they have tremendous amount of power. However, there is a condition. And the condition is, is that the powers of tzaddikim, the powers of the righteous people, the way they become effective, the, the, the ratio of their effectiveness, their fulfillment of their blessing, 
directly corresponds to the level on how we strongly believe in their power of tzaddikim and emunas chachamim. And let me share. Let me explain that to you with a story. It's a little bit of a hard concept to 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 grasp, uh, but but it's a it's a, it's a fundamental concept and it's an amazing concept. So a woman once approached Rebetzin Kanievsky, and uh, she approached uh, Rebetzin Kanievsky, and uh, the this woman was pregnant. And uh, the baby was in a breech position. The baby was was uh, you know was was not in the right uh, was not in the right uh, position. So uh, the doctors told her that if the baby doesn't turn around, she's going to have to go and get a C-section. And anybody that's been through this or you know has known, like I remember, you know, I don't remember which kid this was, but one when my wife was expecting one of the kids and it wasn't in the right position, we ended up traveling everywhere. There was a woman that did some sort of procedure. She gave my wife chocolate and then she turned her upside, literally turned her upside down. There were so many different things because you want the baby to be in the right position. And people go and literally turn upside down to go and try to go and make sure that the baby is in the right position because it's very dangerous if the baby is not in the right position and it could uh, result in a C-section. So this woman goes over to Rebetzin Kanievsky. And Rebetzin Kanievsky goes over to her and she, and she goes and she, and she tells her, check all your sfarim in your apartment and make sure that they're the right side up. So the woman said, okay, fine. But the woman misheard her, misunderstood her. The Rebetzin Kanievsky, she said, check all your sfarim. Your sfarim is your holy books. Make sure that they're right side up. But the woman heard sirim. Check, make sure that all your sirim is the right setup. Sirim is very close to Sfarim in Hebrew, but Sfarim means books. Sirim means pots. So, mean, meanwhile, this woman goes to Rebbe Tzikanyevsky, and Rebbe Tzikanyevsky says, go make sure that all your pots are right, are on the right side up. And she says, okay. You know, she believed in the Rebbe Tzikanyevsky. She, you know, she had a high level of Gunav Chachamim. She goes, and she runs to the house, and she goes through all her cabinets, all her drawers, and she makes sure that all her pots are the right side up. She even opens up her Pesach cabinets, and she makes sure that all her pots are right side up. And the school worked. Within a day, the baby turned. And uh, there was no need for surgery. So she was so happy, she told a few of her friends. She says, you know, you're, never, you're not going to believe this amazing story. She says, you know, the baby was upside down. It was, it was a breech position. I went to the, you know, she told me to check the pots. And, and then I checked the pots and I moved all the pots around. And, uh, you know, that's it. And the baby, and they were like, well, wait, did, did you just say pots? And she was like, yeah, the Rebbe told me to take the pots and make sure they're upside down. And they were like, Rebbe can I ask you, told you to check your pots? And she's like, yeah, she told me to check my pots. And they started laughing about like, are you sure... She said to check your pots because that. Why would? What would? What, what does pots have to do with the baby? Like, what does that even make any sense? I just like I don't know. That's what happened. Like, so I, you know, and I, I did that and it worked. So she's like, um, she's like, you know, the, the friends go to her and be like, you should go back to Rebetzin Kanievsky. Like, that doesn't make any sense. So she went back to Rebetzin Kanievsky, and she said she goes over and she says, you know, when you told me uh, to check my, my, my. Sirim, did you mean Sirim, my pots, or my Sefarim, my, my books? And she says, no, your Sefarim. Why would you check your pot? Like, why would you do that? And she's like, well, you know, and she explains to the Rebbitzin what happened. She says, well, I went out. I thought you said the pots. I went home. I checked all the pots. And within a day, the baby turned. Then everything went out. So the Rebbitzin, Rebbitzin Kanievsky, goes over to her husband, Reb Chaim Kanievsky, the Gadaladar. She goes over to Reb Chaim, and she tells, and she tells him over the story. So Reb Chaim responded by telling her a story from the Gemara Psachim, page 42a. The Gemara Psachim goes and says that before Pesach, Rav Masna was giving a drasha, he's giving a speech in his town, and he quoted Rabbi Yehuda who says that a woman who needs dough for matzos, 
they should use something that's called Maim Shalanu. Maim Shalanu is the, the terminology for this. When the Gemara speaks about it, it's, it's referring to water that has been pumped the night before and left out overnight. That is, Maim Shalanu is water that was rested overnight. But the people that came to the class, the woman that came to the class, they thought Maim Shalanu in Hebrew means Maim Shalanu, our water, or my water, Maim Shalanu, my water. So the woman that came to the class, or the men that came to the class, they understood it, Maim Shalanu is the rabbi's water. Meaning that if we want to bake matzos, we have to get the rabbi's water. And that's why we should bake matzos. And the next morning, there was a long line of women outside of Masna's house, because waiting to receive some of his water. Ask Rabbi Shal Salanter. says, why did the Gemara bring down the story? What is it? Show, show, show the, the ignorance of these people that they didn't realize what Maim Shalanu really meant and they thought it was that. What, what was the purpose of the story? So on the contrary, says Rabbi Shal, explains Rabbi Shal Salanter. And he goes and he says, the Gemara is showing a praise of the exceptional level of emunat chachamim that these women had. Even though the woman didn't understand why they suddenly had to use this rabbi's water but they complied with his instruction. They sat there, even though it made no sense to them. Like, why would we need it? But that's what the rabbi says. That's what we got to do. Rabbi Chaim then goes on to explain to his wife. And he goes and he says, this woman that came to you and went and turned over all our pots, certainly he goes, and he says, the merit of this woman's blind faith in the rabbit's in, in, you know, in the holiness of the righteous people, that's the school of that work for her. The reason that the reason that she had her her Yeshua, her salvation, was because of the merit that she had and on her unblinding faith of the Munasahim. That even though something that made absolutely no sense, but she listened, because that's what the Rabbitson says, that's what I gotta do. Furthermore, Rabbi Chaim Kanevsky writes in the Sefer Echas Yesher that he says that even if a Gadol himself makes a mistake, or the person misunderstood what the Gadol says. The blessing still takes effect as long as the person has strong and unwavering emunat hachamim. Meaning that the level, the power of the blessing is obviously, it depends on who's giving you the blessing, obviously. But it also relates to the level of unwavering, uh, um, you know, faith that you have in the, in the, in the tzaddikim. There's, there's a level, and if, if you think about it for a second, that's something so amazing that the power, when a rabbi, when a huge rabbi, when a gadol gives you a bracha, the power also lies in you. Depending on your level of belief in that rabbi is the level of how that blessing will come into fruition. We'll bring another proof for this. Because it's just such an a, a aspect that people have a hard time grasping. Yaakov Avinu, when he was about to bless his children, um, and this was before, right before he passed away, it says that, that he, he sat up in his bed. The, the Pasuk in Bereshit, chapter 48, verse 2, goes and says, And Yaakov, which is known as Yisrael, he summoned all his strength and he sat up in his bed. As the Das Zakenim. He said, you know, he wanted to go and give the blessing to his, to his kids. Why did he have to go and sit himself up? Let him, why, why would he have to do that? So he explains to the Asakanim that Yaakov Binu knew has, that his end was near. And he didn't want his children to consider his final words as the deathbed of someone who was dying that maybe he wasn't completely lucid. He wasn't completely there. He was like halfway in the next world already. Maybe He didn't want his children to think about that. So he exerted himself. He made himself sit up in his bed to show that he had the strength to sit up in his bed to show that I am fully focused. I am fully lucid. I know exactly what's going on and I'm giving you the blessing. Ask Reb Simcha Zizel Zivav Kalm. 
What difference does it make? This is Yaakov Avinu. You know, this is Yaakov Avinu we're talking about. What difference does it make if his children thought that he was lucid or not? This is the, the, the greatest ra- the, of the generation, of, arguably of all time, is giving a blessing. What does it matter what they would think? Ask. Rabbi Simchazizel goes and answers. And he says that even the blessing of a tzaddik like Yaakov Avinu only takes effect if the recipient believes that the tzaddik has the power to give that blessing. And it says, explains Rabbi Simchazizel, if we don't believe in the blessing, it has absolutely no power. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that a crazy concept that, that, that we have to instill in ourselves? So we see over here, explains Rabbi Simchazizel, that ultimately the recipient is the one who has the power to ensure that the blessing will be fulfilled. The tzaddik is only a conduit. And that's why Yaakov Inu set up. He wanted to make sure that his children know that he is coming with a false... Why did he want his children to be so focused that he's fully lucid? Because then they're going to be able to have that stronger belief in them. The stronger belief that the muna of tzaddikim, that everything that they say is going to come true because he's fully with it. I'd like to share with you something from the Kleisenberger Rebbe. But before... It's a story about the Kleisenberger Rebbe. But before... I have to give you a little bit of a background on who the Kleisenberger Rebbe was. So Rabbi Yukasil Yehuda Halberstam, he became Rav at the age of 22 in a shul in Kleisenberg. It was actually a Sephardi shul in Kleisenberg. And uh, he, he's, you know, comes from a long lineage of, of rabbis. He was, uh, uh, I believe, he was a great-grandson of the Divrei Chaim, the, 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 the Rav Chaim Halberstam of Sons. He was also, um, who was his uncle... Uh, it's still by mine. Yeah, there's a there's a whole long line. I, I believe the Bnei Saskar, if I'm not mistaken, from his mother's side. A long line of, of rabbinic dynasty. And at the age of 22, he became the rabbi. He was known as a genius already from a, from a young age. Unfortunately, um, he was uh, taken in the Holocaust, him and his entire family. And in the Holocaust, he refused to eat. He even kept his level of piety in the in, you know during during the in the concentration camps. He refused to eat any non-kosher food, even though that he urged his followers. He says, "You make sure you eat this. If it's going to cause you to say you have to eat anything, kosher, not kosher, doesn't matter. If it's it, you know this is a, a, a situation of life and death, eat whatever it is that you have." But for himself, he didn't eat anything that not wasn't kosher. And even if he had the little water that he had, he used that to wash his hands. He was on such a, such a level. On, the Nazis, they, they noticed that. They noticed that he was on a different level. He was a prominent, he had religious status he had. So he was put in for special torture because of his stature. One particular time, he was uh, able to get out of working on the last days of Sukkot. And the Germans found out that he wasn't working. And what they did was that they took him out and they beat him so violently they, they, to, to the point that the people you know, didn't think the rabbi was surviving. And not only that, when they kept on beating him, and then when the Nazis decided that they are finished with beating him up, they left, but they, they said that nobody's allowed to go close to him. Nobody's allowed to help him up. Nobody's allowed to have him. The people already thought that the rabbi passed away. There's, there's, not, there's no way that he survived that. And they were first forced to continue working, and they figured when they're going to come home to their barracks that night, uh, they will have to mourn over the rabbi. And miraculously, when they get back to the barracks, they see that the rabbi was able to slowly get to the barracks and he was leaning on the bedpost. He was like holding on one of the bedposts and he was mumbling something and he was swaying back and forth, mumbling and swaying back and forth. 
So they ran over there. The, the rabbi, they were surprised that there was a rabbi was alive, let alone he was standing up holding it. They, they were like, Rabbi, you got to lay down. You got to rest. Who knows? You, you, you know, you're not going to be able to survive like this. And they, they started saying, say, Rabbi, what are you doing? Why are you moving back and forth holding onto the bedpost? And he goes over to his, you know, the people that were near him. He was like, he's like, tonight is Simchat Allah. He says, tonight is Simchat Allah. He says, I'm dancing. He says, come dance with me. And the person that said over the story said it was such a, a, you know, a moving thing where you have somebody who was barely able to walk and they didn't have any Torah to hold on. They had the Torah in their hearts. That's it. And they were slowly walking around in a circle, mumbling some songs that they, that they, before so the Nazis don't come in. This is who the Kleisenberger Rebbe was. Taking a step further, realizing that when he was uh, in, the hol- in the concentration camp, he said over that uh, one day he was shot in the arm. And he was shot in the arm, and he was afraid to go to the infirmary. Because he realized that people that went in the infirmary never came out alive. So he decided that he's going to have to heal himself, figure something out. He got shot in his arm, so he took a leaf, he tried to stop the bleeding, then he took two branches, and he started to make a little like, stint out of that, to, so that his arm would stay in one position. And as he's doing this, he goes and, and he promised himself. And he says, "If God, if you take me out of this alive... He says, I am going to build a hospital in Israel where every human being would be cared for with dignity. And not only that, he says, all he, he, the, the, the basis of the hospital will be a religious hospital. The doctors, the nurses, they will believe in God. And they will treat every patient as if they were fulfilling the greatest mitzvah in the Torah. And that's how it was. He was able to get out of the Holocaust and he established the Lineato Hospital. This is a hospital, this is a 484-bed hospital in Kiryat Sanz in Netanyahu. That still exists. However, he was able to survive the concentration camp. But he had a wife and 11 children that didn't make it out there. And it was the Yom Kippur after they were liberated. It was 1945. And they made a, they were still in the refugee camp somewhere in Germany. And they made a synagogue. It was Yom Kippur. And the rabbi who was there was this Klosenberger rabbi. He was a rabbi. Uh, and, you know, the Cantor get up there, the Chazan gets up there and begins singing, you know, the prayers. And there was so much crying. Oh, there was so much crying. And then finally they got to the part where they say al where they request forgiveness for the sins that they did. And people are going, they say al And they've requested forgiveness for the sins they did with their eyes and with their hands and with their ears, all the, forg- all the sins that they did. All of a sudden, there was one guy that stand out, stands up and stamped his foot and screamed, No! And everybody tried to calm him down. They're like, you know, we're all prayers, young people over here. He's like, no. He says, I should ask God for forgiveness? He says, I should ask God? He says, well, my eyes saw my own children getting killed. These hands, he goes and he says, I had no time to sin. They worked for the Germans. I was brazen. I have to say, I'll hate that I was brazen. I didn't lift my head for three years. I was callous, he goes on. He says, the last piece of bread I gave off to somebody else, somebody I didn't even know. And he goes on and says, if anybody has to ask for forgiveness, it's God. And everybody was like taking a bath. Like, what do you say to that? So they turned to the Klosenberger Rebbe. And this is how they read the story. The Klosenberger goes and he says to them, says, you know, I hear you. You're right. And everybody burst into tears, burst out crying. And then when a few minutes go by and the crying subsided, the Klosenberger Rebbe goes and says, but I want to tell you why I am asking God for forgiveness today. He goes and he says, you know, in our camp, the guards used to amuse himself. And every morning, they would play this crazy sadistic game. They would take five random inmates, and they would 
pile on us a load of bricks. And there was a steep flight of stairs that they would have that this inmates would have to climb up in front of everybody. And if one brick would fall, they would add replace it with two more bricks. And if the prisoner didn't make it up and they fell, they would slowly torture them until death before everybody's eyes. And they did this every single morning. Klesberg goes on. And he says, it was unbearably cold. Our clothing infested with lice. There was nothing to eat. Everybody was sick. Everybody was dying. But he said, you want to know the worst and most humiliating part was that morning ordeal. It got to the point that each of us had a prayer that we said every night before going to sleep. And the prayer was very short and straight to the point. The prayer was, God, merciful God, please let me die in my sleep. That was a prayer that we used to say. They didn't want to wake up the next morning. And the Klesenberg ever says, I used to say it too. And he goes on and he says, that's why I'm asking for forgiveness. That is the sin that I'm confessing on this young people. It never entered my mind that I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask for something. Maybe that I should be free. We didn't know what freedom was. Free? What, what's free? It wasn't even something in our thing. This is why I ask God for forgiveness. This was just an introduction to explain to you who the Kleisenberger Rebbe was. That when everybody else was asking questions, he didn't ask it. He was saying, what am I going to do more? Well, how am I going to fix it? He was always on the higher level. He was a, 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 on a caliber that, that we could only dream of. Fast forward a few years after the Holocaust, the, uh, the Klesenberger Yeshiva opened up in Union City in New Jersey. He also went to Arzichal, but he had a yeshiva in, in New Jersey. And they found out that one, you know, at one particular year that the Klesenberger Rebbe is going to you know, take up residence in the yeshiva building. I believe it was a six-story building. So everybody was so excited, so happy. And until this time, there was no elevator in the building. But because the Rebbe is arriving and because of this you know, thing, they decided they're going to put an elevator into the, into the building. But because when you have a yeshiva full of young guys, you know, they don't need to use the elevator. So the elevator was used only for the Rebbe and for the administration. If they needed it, that, that was who the elevator was for. The rest of the student body was not supposed to use the elevator. However, the young yeshiva boys were very... Um, creative, let's call it. And even though that it was locked with a key, they figured out ways and how to open up and use the elevator. They made a contraption, like a long metal pole, skinny metal pole, that they were able to stick in a certain place in the elevator, and then they were able to open up the elevator doors. So all they had to do is figure out where the elevator was. They go to that floor, wherever it's lit up. Then they could open up the door, and then they could use the elevator. There's one. There was one particular boy by the name of Beryl, very sweet, reliable boy that uh, the administration figured, you know, there was, these are boys that they slept, they dormed in the, in the, in the yeshiva over there. And they wanted to appoint a certain, a certain boy to be sort of like the beaker holem, that if someone's not feeling well, he will check up on them. Maybe they need some food. Maybe they need something to drink. So he'll be, you know, in charge of that. The year was 1976. It was a leap year that year. And Shushan Purim Katan fell out on Shabbos. So Shal Shudis, the Rebbe and all the students were singing or dancing or giving, you know, speeches, was, was learning Torah. And it stretched on until after Abdallah and after Malava Maka, this, this stretched on until 2 o'clock in the morning. And 2 o'clock in the morning, Beryl, which was the one in charge of, uh, you know, this bigger holem, he was exhausted. He said he's going to make it. People already made their way out. He decided that he's going to go to bed. And then he remembered that there was one boy that was um, 
you know, that was tired. Uh, that, I'm sorry, that was sick. And he said, you know, let me go check on him. Let me go see, maybe he needs something. He says, you know, before I go check on him, let me go to the kitchen. Maybe I could, you know, pick some food before I go out. So he goes into the kitchen and he noticed that there was a boy there that was making french fries. So he goes over to the boy and he says, you know, can you do me a favor? Can you, um, uh, can I get some french fries for the boy that's sick? He said, yeah, of course, take as much as you need. So he's taking the french fries and now he's thinking he's got to go all the way up to the top floor and he's in the bottom floor and he's got that metal piece in his pocket that he could use the elevator. And he's like, after all, you know, starts rationalizing it. It's a mitzvah. It's for, you know, like it's 12 o'clock in the morning. You know, I, I could, I should use the elevator after all, after, you know, it's only right that I should use the elevator. So he looks at the elevator and he sees that the elevator is, is in uh, level number two. So he says, fine. He goes up to level number two. Now, level number two is the level of where the rabbi slept. And that's why they made sure that all the lights were closed. There was no sound of this. The rabbi, in the few hours that he was able to rest, he had the peace and quiet. It was pitch black. And he says, okay, that's normal. This is the rabbi sleeping. So he quietly makes his way to the elevator. He sticks his little, you know, thingamajiggy, his little contraption into the elevator, opens it up, and he notices the elevator is also pitch black, which also made sense, you know, probably the light bulb, you know, uh, went out. And he opens up the doors, he goes and he takes his first step into the elevator. The problem is before he could realize it, he realized that there was no floor to the elevator. And before he could think twice, he was plunging through the elevator shaft. And he fell in, down until the bottom floor with a huge cloud of dust. And he felt like this cracking sound on his feet. And he started, oh, there was some screaming. The boys came rushing. Be like, what's going on? And he's sitting over there in the bottom of the elevator shaft, screaming in pain. And the boys run and be like, is everything okay? Are you okay? And they jumped down into the elevator shaft. They went down to the first floor. They opened up the elevator and they jumped down. And they hoist him out up and they start, they call, they call the ambulance. They call 911, they call Hatsala. What happened was, is that the elevator was broken. And they didn't know the elevator was really a number three. And the light said it was not number two. And the boy didn't know that. Nobody knew that it was broken. They weren't supposed to use it anyways. And the boy fell right through to the bottom. And Hatsala comes and they, they take him, they rush him to the hospital. They get to the hospital and they right away, they bring him through x-rays. They give him some pain medicine. They see like there's something really, really wrong. And uh, they go through all these uh, diagnostics and they, they come out, they realize that his feet were shattered and they predicted that he's never going to walk again. But that was only the minor problem of all of them. He had another life-threatening spinal injury. There was a vertebrae that broke. And this vertebrae, this, you know, was pressing on his spinal cord. When the parents finally came to the, um, you know, to, to see him, he, the, the boy in the hospital, he called, he says, call the Rebbe, call the Kleisenberg Rebbe. So they go, it was at this time close to 4 a.m. They call the Rebbe. The Rebbe goes and hears what's going on. And he goes over to him and says, you must move your son immediately. He says, take him to the hospital of joint, uh, of, of joint diseases. These they are expert on every single joint in the human body. They're better equipped to help bring your son to a complete refuah shleima. Do not stay where you are. So they said, okay, that's what the rabbi says. They go over to the doctor and say, listen, uh, you know, we want to move him to this hospital. And the doctor was like, move him? He's like, there's no way this person can be moved right now. His spine is in such bad shape that if you move him, he could die. He needs to remain here in the hospital on attraction, sort of like a stretching machine, for the next 9 to 12 months. And after that, maybe we can operate. He's, little, he's bounced between life and death. So the parents are like, oh, okay, you know, they call back to the rabbi. The rabbi, you know, said, you know, the doctor says it's life and death. You know, we can't move him. They don't allow us to move him. So the rabbi goes over to them and he says, the x-ray is wrong. 
He says, you have to move your son immediately. And he goes on, he says, I take full responsibility for his recovery. When Beryl, when the boy heard that this is what the Rebbe wanted, he insisted on his parents to follow the rabbi's advice. And he goes over to his parents and he goes over to the doctors. I'm already over 18. He says, I insist that I be taken to the hospital. The Rebbe said, I'm willing to sign any documents they want, but I am listening to whatever the Rebbe said. So against all doctors' protests, they went and they brought an ambulance and they transported the boy to the, to the hospital. The boy goes and says, the barrel goes and says that every time they went on a pothole, they, there, was a bu- they, there was a little bump. He says, I, I felt like I was going to die. The pain was so bad. He says, but I kept on reiterating. He says, the rabbi takes full responsibility. The rabbi takes full responsibility. That's what he said. They arrived at the hospital and this hospital took another x-ray. And they were able to compare the both x-rays and they were slightly different. But that slight difference was the difference between the determines between life and death. In the new hospital, the doctors examined him and they said, yes, your feet was indeed shattered and he's not, he's not going to be able to walk again. But when it came to his spine, where the previous hospital thought it was a life and death situation, they realized it was not as serious as their, orig- as their original diagnosis. For the next few days, this barrel, this boy, was in intensive treatment. And uh, miraculously, after about a week, one week, he was able to leave the hospital with a brace on his back. And he was went out in a wheelchair. And by this, there was, it was like nothing short of a miracle. Even the doctors didn't believe it. Purim was three weeks away. And his parents wanted to, you know, to, sp- to spend the, the, you know, the holiday with them. But the, the boy says, no, I have to go to the Rebbe on Purim. He says, you, you, just, you should still be in the hospital for like another nine months, 11 months. Like, what do you mean you're going to the to back to Yeshiva? I says, I need to be with my rabbi. So they saw that they couldn't you know, convince him otherwise, so they, they made arrangements to bring him to, the, you know, to his rabbi in Union City. However, when they got to the, to the yeshiva, the elevator was still out of commission. So they had to call a bunch of boys, and they helped him, and they carried him up with the wheelchair to the fourth floor. And there the rabbi was make, ma- making his perm tish, his perm suda. And the barrel was wheeled over next to the rabbi. And the rabbi looks at him, and he goes to him in Yiddish, and he says, the wheelchair is a good costume for Purim. But the day after Purim, you're going to walk. In his mind, Beryl, there was no question. He was walking after Purim. Even though the doctor said there's no chance, he's not walking after Purim. But in his mind, he's walking a day after Purim. He was there for a short while, then he went back home. The next morning, the morning after Purim, Beryl woke up. He says, that's it. The rabbi said, I'm walking today. It happens. With, you know, like this full-on energy and full-on like, like enthusiasm, he gets out of his bed and he falls straight on the floor. And he felt as if his feet shattered again. It was so painful. Luckily, he had some carpet there. But he didn't want to start screaming out of his pain, pain because he didn't want his parents to come in and to start worrying about it. But he sat there for a half an hour. He couldn't move. The pain was unbearable. Finally, a half hour goes by he felt he was able to move a little bit without feeling he was about to faint. And he slowly managed to raise himself and pull him back up to bed. And he thought for a second, he says, you know what, maybe I misunderstood what the rabbi said. He's like, there's no way I'm walking. And he's, he's going back with the conversation. He's like, no. He's like, wait a minute, the rabbi was very clear. He said, no, the rabbi said, I will stand on my feet and today and I will. And he went and he very, very slowly, he rose himself from his bed, holding onto his bed with both his hands. He put his full weight on his hands and he slowly, slowly picked himself up. 
It was 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes. Finally, he's finally standing up there with full weight only on his hands, but his feet are standing on the ground. And then slowly, slowly, he puts a little bit more pressure on, on, on the feet. And in a period of several hours, he fought the pain like unbelievable. He was able to take one step after another step. He walked like an old man, but he was able to take one step after another. And he kept on putting it back in his head, his, the Rebbe's words, the wheelchair is a good costume for Purim, but you will walk a day after Purim. And the day after Purim, he was walking. He was walking. A few short weeks later, where the doctors thought that he would never walk again and quite possibly die, he was able to walk unassisted. His shattered feet recovered against all odds of the doctors, and the doctors saw it as a complete miracle. Beryl, on the other hand, didn't see it as a miracle. He says, what do you mean? The Klosenberger Rebbe, the Rebbe take full responsibility. He says, there's only one possible outcome. The Rebbe promised, and that's what's going to happen. That was the level of somebody has a monachan. This is something that the doctor said, there's no chance. There's nothing. But the Rebbe said there's a chance. And again, there is a reason why I gave you the introduction of who this Rebbe was, what the level of this Rebbe was. Look at the power of a monachan. I want to share with you something about Matthias Solomon. Rabbi Tzayel Solomon goes and you know explains on the prayers on Rosh Hashanah, we recall Avram's great dedication that he sacrificed Yitzchak, and on the day of Rosh Hashanah we remember we re- we read over the Akedas Yitzchak where Avram was going to sacrifice his son Yitzchak and Yitzchak was going to sacrifice his life what to God for God. Now ask Rabbi Tzayel Solomon so. We know what Avram's test was, right? It's very, you know, he had his love and devotion to God, and he had to power that against his powerful love for his son. And he had to balance that which one he's going to listen to. And with unparalleled faith, without hesitation, he was able to pass that test and offer up his son as a sacrifice to, to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And we understand that this brings merit to the Jewish nation. Again, for all generations, makes makes all sense. Okay. But what about Yitzhak's test? As from what was What was Isaac's test? You know, his readiness to give up his life? Now again, it's not an easy thing to give up a life, but if a person goes and has completely convinced that the whole purpose of life, life is for Olam Habas, for the next world, and they know that if they give up their life right now, they put everything on the line, they give up their life, they're going to have a straight ticket to Gan Eden, it's a little bit less difficult to do. And and you have, uh, you know, this, the, it was a famous saying, right? It's easier to die to the Hashem but it's harder to live al Kiddush Hashem. It's easier just to give up your life and die al Kiddush Hashem rather than to spend your life, you know, living in Hashem. Yes, it will be painful, very intense pain, but after a short period of time, it's over. And then you have Olam Haba forever. So what was, what was Yitzchak's test? For that brief moment, he had full, I mean, Abram was, was teaching him, he was, Abram was his, was his Rebbe, was such a, the, the most righteous person alive. The whole purpose of him being in this world was for the next world. And here he has a golden ticket straight to the next world. So ask Rabbi Matasyel Salman, what was the test of Yitzhak? What was the test? So, yes, we understand it was a test, but for generations, for thousands of generations? Explains the Chassam Sofer. Something amazing, something crazy. Listen to this. We know that Moshe Rabbeinu, the level of prophecy, and this is something if anybody wants to learn more about it, we spoke about prophecy and the 13 principles of faith. Um, we gave at least one class, maybe even two classes on prophecy. So if you want to learn more about this, definitely, definitely look into those classes. But the Chassam Sofer goes and explains that 
there was different levels of prophecy. So when Moshe Rabbeinu prophesied, he had perfect clarity on the prophecy. The message was unfiltered, was clear as day. However, all other prophets, including Avram, they received their prophetic communication through sort of an unclear filter. The way the Gemara in Sanhedrin, uh, page 97b goes, and it says that it's aspakliyasha enam ira. It's like a... It was like a clouded mirror, so to speak. Like they saw it, but they had to, they saw the vision, but they had to decipher the message and interpret it. Now, again, we, we speak about it. I don't want to go too much into detail, but if you do want to learn more about it, definitely go look at the, uh, the 13 Principles of Faith series that we spoke about on, on, uh, on prophecy. But there is, for, for all the other prophets, there was a level of interpretation that they had to interpret. And Avram was also on that level that he had to interpret it. Yitzchak, at this point in time, at Akedah Sitzchak, he didn't have the gift of prophecy yet. Hashem didn't speak to Yitzchak. Hashem spoke to Avram. And Yitzchak went, and he goes with Avram, says, you know, uh, we have to go and we have to sacrifice. And then when Yitzchak goes and says, but where is the animal that we're sacrificing? Avram goes and says, no, the prophecy was that I should sacrifice you. Now, Yitzchak could have responded, be like, well, father, you know, this is... An interpretation, right? Are you sure the interpretation was correct? Because it doesn't sound like God will want me to die. You know, like there's many, many reasons that we could go and discuss. Now, Yitzhak could have been like, uh, are you sure? You know, like, like uh, no, like, because, like, you know, with all due respect, the most respectful way possible would be like, you know, but like, it's an interpretation, you know, like, you know, my life is on the line over here. Are you sure about it? Says the Chassam Soifer, says, you want to know what Yitzhak's test was? Yitzchak's test was a Munas Chachamim. Avram got the prophecy. Avram came to the conclusion, and rightfully so. Yitzchak's test was to believe that conclusion. Yitzchak's test was a Munas Chachamim. Says the Chassam Sofer, this is the merit that we bring up on Rosh Hashanah. This is how we connected the merit of, of Yitzchak, at Akedah Yitzchak. That when we live with a Munas Chachamim, when we have that faith, that power, that connects us to Yitzchak, that has a power for all generations to come. After the Bnei Yisrael had the, the, the salvation of the Yamsov, the, the Pasuk says in Shemais, chapter 14, verse 31, it says, We say this every single day. It says that we believed what we saw, the people saw, they, 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 they feared Hashem and they believed in Moshe his servant. When we believe in our Torah leaders, when we believe in that, we're affirming our faith in HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And by the way, there is reward for that also. Just as HaKadosh Baruch Hu rewards for placing his faith in, you know, in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, there's also a reward in having faith in his faithful servants, in the tzaddikim, the gedolim of the generation. And what is the level that you should have in this? We look at the story of Hannah. Hannah was barren. And eventually she merited giving birth to Shmuel Hanavi. On Rosh Hashanah, Hannah was very you know, dis, you know, distressed and she, she went and she poured out her heart to Hashem. And we all know the story. Elia Khan first observed her she thought she was drunk. But when Hannah explained her situation, and, you know, and, and Elia Khan realized that he was wrong, he gave her a heartfelt bracha for a child. You know, so this is very, something, very interesting. The Pasuk goes on. Immediately after Eli promised Hannah a child and blessed her with a child, the Pasuk in Shmuel, in the first chapter of Shmuel, in, in, in uh, Pasuk 18, in the, um, chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Ufaneha loyhayu la'ayd. Her face was no longer sad anymore. That's it. The second, explains the brisker up, she was broken for so many years, but the second that she got this blessing from the Gadol, from the Tzaddik, from Eli Akain, from the Kohen Gadol, she had such a level of Amunah Sachamin that the moment she heard the words from her, her dejection, her sadness, her, that's it, it left her. 
She was done. She was happy. She was, she was like, okay, the rabbi blessed. That's it. It's going to happen. I'd like to finish off with two, two stories. Rabbi Melech Bluth was one of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein's closest Talmudim, one of his closest Talmudim. And there was a broken woman who came to Rabbi Moshe. She had been married for a very, very long time, getting one disappointment after another. Every year, she goes to her husband, go get a blessing for Rabbi Moshe, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, Gadaldar. And he goes over, Moshe blesses them for a child, but so far, nothing came in yet. So the woman decided she had enough. She goes to Rabbi Moshe Feinstein and brazenly demands that Rabbi Moshe decree and she goes and says the Gemara and Tainis goes and says that the power of a tzaddik, a tzaddik geyser, a tzaddik decrees and God will fulfill that decree. So she goes over to Moshe Feinstein and says, I want you to decree that I'll have a child. Moshe Feinstein taking it back says, I should decree? Moshe Feinstein was one of the most humblest persons. You know, like, he says, what strength does my words have? But she insisted. She begged repeatedly. Yes, you can decree, you can decree. Rav Luth, he was, he was observing the scene. He tried to calm the woman down, but Ramosha said to him, no, no, no. The woman started crying hysterically. Ramosha said, let her cry. Let her cry. Ramosha felt that the, the, it's emotional and healthy for, for this woman to go and let it out at this point in time. After a long while, the woman stopped crying. She regained her composure, and Ramosha gave her some disappointing news, to say the least. And he goes and says, I'm sorry, but I cannot decree that you should have a child. My decrees, well, they won't have any effect. But before the woman had a chance to respond, he continued. And he says, but you should know that in the merit of your faith, in the ability for those who learn Torah, the level of faith that you have for those that learn Torah, you deserve to give birth to a child. Then the woman also was broken no longer. She says, when? And let me just... Ramosha finds he didn't promise her a child. He says that... She, he goes and he says that in the merit of your faith, in the ability of those who learn Torah, you deserve to give birth to a child. The woman says, when? So he goes to the woman and says, listen, nine months from now is Hanukkah, so it's not going to be before Hanukkah. And she says, fine, no problem. The last day of Hanukkah, she gave birth to a baby boy. This is the level of what the power of a Munas HaChanan had. There was a young son of Rabbi Shalom Chadran. He had a whooping cough. And a bad cough. So they went to the Chazanish for advice. And uh, the Chazanish told them, he says, go to, a, to, to the Yarkon River. It's in the Tel Aviv area. And there the ear is very clear. There's eucalyptus trees. This could heal him. So Rav Shalom Shadran goes, rented a boat. And while he was taking the boat out, he kept on repeating, Mitzvah l'shmaya divrei chachamim. It's a mitzvah to listen to the words of our sages. And sure enough, the child had a miraculous recovery. Rav Shalom's son, you know, goes to his father and says, you know, like, there's obviously some very powerful, you know, stuff in this area. There are a lot of other people that could be suffering from this. You should publicize the information. So Rav Shalom Shadron says, he says, you think that the eucalyptus is what healed you? He says, you know what healed you? Healed you? The merit of the munas chachamim that we had. It's a mitzvah l'shmayel adivrei chachamim. He says, the merit that we listened to the tzaddikim, that is what gave us the merit to go and to, uh, to be healed. I'm sorry, I said two, two more stories. This is the last story, final story. Last one, I'm going to finish. Open up some questions. I know we're a little bit over. So, the, this, uh, we have Yaakov Mutsafi, um, originally from Baghdad, had a, says a couple had a problem. And the problem was is that their baby did not stop crying. 
now there's terminology for the you know these kids that just like you can't can be sad like constantly just crying crying day in and day night day night anywhere in between crying 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 they went to all the doctors there was nothing wrong with the child they, they couldn't figure out why this baby doesn't stop crying you know the frustration of the parents mounted up and that they could not eat they cannot sleep they were walking on pins and needles and eggshells they were beyond themselves what bothered them most was like this child was suffering there's something wrong with the little baby doesn't stop crying and then how could a mother hear a little baby non-stop crying and the, the, the parents were emotionally tor- torn but at the same point in time they felt guilty why because at times where the incessant cries the cries that just doesn't stop the compassion unfortunately can turn to anger and one day the baby's mother decided that you know she, need, she needs a, she needs a break she's taking a walk she couldn't she couldn't handle it anymore she took a walk. She was hoping the fresh air will calm her down, have a little bit more patience with the baby. She, while she's out walking in the marketplace, she sees on the floor a torn a page that was torn out from the chumash. So she bent up, picked it up, and gave it a kiss. And she's thinking, she says, maybe, maybe God is sending me a special gift. Maybe this holy page is what's going to bring my child to recovery. And it's going to cause the crying to cease. So she quickly goes back home. She placed the piece of paper carefully on the table and with tears in her eyes she starts praying and she says he says master of the world God I'm a simple woman I don't know how to read I don't know what this says but I know that the paper that I picked up comes from your holy Torah please I beg of you let this heal my child let this be a healing amulet for my child she then takes out the paper rolls it up puts it in a tiny compartment and puts this around the child's neck. Within moments of this necklace going on this child's neck, the child falls asleep, calm as it is. And from that moment on, the child's behavior changed drastically. The crying stopped. Even you know, the little chubby face even had a smile here and there. And for the first time in months, the mother smiled as well. The father came home later that evening, and he immediately noticed there was something different in the house. You know, like there was the sense of, peacefulness, calmness, something that he wasn't used to. And he's like, you know, the, the, his wife was sitting there smiling, happy. And usually that should be the right way. But in this situation, he's like, what happened? Like, what's like what's going on here? That's not the usual. And she tells him a story. She says she was walking in the marketplace and she came across this piece of paper and she made this into an amulet. And it, it, looked, it worked. And he's like, that's unbelievable. He says, let me see the piece of paper. So she takes out the piece of paper and she hands it to him. And he looks at the piece of paper and all of a sudden his hands begin to tremble. And he's like, what, what have you done? He's like, this is a page from the Torah. This is from the, this is, it is a page from the Torah, but it's all the greatest curses that are going to befall upon the Jewish people. This is in the 28th chapter of Devarim. This is exactly the opposite of what we need. This is what you put on his head. He you know, his wife turned pale. She's like, how am I supposed to know? I can't. I don't know how to read. I can't read Hebrew. Rav Matsafi goes and concludes the story. And he says, this is the power of Emunah Pshuta. This is the power of Emunah. That it can transform the most terrifying curses into the most beneficial blessings. We never realize the power that we hold inside of us. We always look at other people. They're the ones that are going to save me. They're the ones that are going to help me. Yes, you should go and ask blessings from all the big rabbis. And you really should. But the power also lies in you. The power also lies in your emunas kachamim. 
The next time that you get a blessing, it also depends on the power that you have of what you're going to go and how you're going to believe it. The power of the Muna is so, so strong. Let us not take this to waste. Let us take this into our heart, into our consideration. We could change our life. This has a power to annul decrees. That has a power to do so much good. Let us internalize this and really utilize this. And may our lives really be turned into a life full of blessing. And we'll open up to questions. Okay. All right. Seems like we have one question over here. We have a comment over here. No one should listen to people like that. Okay. Um, okay, here's a question. The Rob said that three tzaddikim are chosen in each generation and why specifically that number no 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 i didn't I, I, if i said three tzaddikim are chosen each generation I, that was that was incorrect i don't remember saying that but if i did it's it's not no there's no there's no three tzaddikim in every generation there is a select few of tzaddikim that are these these special nishamas that are brought down to lead the nation uh the next question is munat chachamim or munat tzaddikim the literal translation is munat chachamim um, is 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 what the the terminology is, but obviously the chacham needs to be a tzaddik also um, as well. Okay, uh, seems like we have one last question. I know that if a tzaddik decrees something, it will happen, but if a tzaddik decrees something bad, can you have imuna that it won't happen if you do tshuva? So this is a very interesting question. So uh, in a sense, yes. Yeah. So it, let let's take this and I'll explain this in a different in a different way. If in a way of her prophecy, that even if there was a prophecy that a prophet, meaning a real prophet, we don't have it nowadays, but you know, in the times when there was prophecy, if a prophet decreed something that was supposed to be happen and it was supposed to be bad, there is you don't have to believe that that will happen. If you go and you do tshuva, that could avert the decree. And in fact, this is something that doesn't nullify a, uh, a, a prophet. Meaning that if a prophet decrees something and it doesn't come to fruition, it'd be like, okay, must be, he's not a prophet. No, if he, a prophet decrees something good and it doesn't come, yes, then it's a problem. But if a prophet decrees something, uh, you know, gives a prophecy of something bad and it doesn't happen, that doesn't mean that it was a wrong prophecy. It was most likely a right prophecy. But if people do tshuva, you could annul that, that decree. So the same thing, uh, you know, nowadays. Next question, do we know who these special tzaddikim are? Not all of them, because some of them are hidden. But we know the Gdol Adon. We know Rabchaim Kaniyaski. We know, we know the leaders, you know, of the, of the generation. Um, you know, the, the Zerab Gesh and Edelstein. We, we have Gdolim of the generation. And these are the people that uh, we know are, are, and then there's also the hidden ones. Okay. Another thank you very much. Okay, another thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you also for joining. Um, okay, uh, the next question. This is a little random, but I heard that the War of Gog Umago can be referring to a spiritual war. Um, can Gog Umago be referring to a spiritual war? I'm trying to think of how I could do this in a short way. There's a really long answer to this so so first of all let's back it up a little bit that if you really want to look i, I, I gave a full series on mashiach and there i spoke about Gogo Mugo, so it's a, it was a really long heavy class on Gogo Mugo, so i i can't go through the, all that detail but um there is an aspect of where mashiach to come where it won't be as terrible as it can be meaning that Mashiach could come in two different ways. It could come in a, in a time period, um, the way that the Gemara goes explains it, it could be in the right time, or or it could be in a rush time. In the right time, mean will be that it will be at the end of days, and that's when Mashiach is going to come. If it comes in that, in that point in time, that, so it, it could come in a way that it could be 
you know, a little bit more on the painful aspect where Gogamagog will be very physical. But Mashiach come earlier, meaning that if we're on a level that we that we're on a spiritual level that we're able to bring Mashiach earlier, that Mashiach that will come will be in a way that it's uh, less horrific, less tragic in the Gogamago sense as if it would come the regular time. Um, I, I hope that I'm clear because I'm trying to say it as, as short as possible. So in a sense, if that being the case, then yes, Gokumago could in sense be something spiritual because by going and, and fighting the spiritual battles, we're able to avert or avoid that terrible, terrible uh, war of Gokumago. Okay, I hope that answers. It's a little bit of a, a brief answer, but again, you could look more into detail to it into our Mashiach series. Okay, uh, next question. <clears throat> Are these Chachamim sent down to help the generation or Kawan hypothetically become one? So there is, there is special souls that come down into this world. For example, like the Arizal was, came down this world on a, on, a, on, a, on a high, very, very high level. But yes, people are coming down to this world on a high level, and then people can reach a high level by, they come back as a regular person, and they can reach a high level, and that also has the power, they are also on the category of Hachamim and Sadiqim, and they could also have the same power as the other Sadiqim. Okay. Uh, next question. Um, okay, uh, Mr. Chairman, I'll be able to attend the uh, okay, live class. All right, okay, a question off topic. Not sure if this can be answered. Where is the Torah, where in the Torah is it written what is going on today between Russia and Ukraine? Okay, so it's interesting because I was thinking about, you know, there's every time that there's a large um, situation of like of worldly proportions, there's always comes up that this is Mashiach and this is Gogamagog and this is, you know, the final thing. And and I, in the Torah itself, doesn't speak about uh, the details of, meaning in the Hamishah in the, Torah, it doesn't speak about the details, in details about Gogamagog, but we have a lot of Midrashim that does speak about it. And I didn't have a chance to look at this, but I do remember something, I'll, regarding Gogamagog, there is something that has to do with Russia. And I don't know if that's Ukraine also. I would have to look it up. And, uh, you know, I don't like just saying that there are some people that come up and every time that there's something that Trump is going to be Mashiach and then, you know, Obama was Gog and then Putin is Muggle. It's like everybody comes up with everything. And unless there's a source for it, I, I very strongly, you know, I'm against that whole uh, methodology. I, I think that's, that's uh, you know, you have to source everything. So I, I don't remember off the top of my head. I could look into it, but I... Don't know if it was Ukraine. I don't know. Something I have to look into. So uh, I don't have a source of what's going on, even though there, I'm sure there is. Okay. Oh, here's a question. Is there anyone in Brooklyn now to give a bracha for children? Um, is there Gedalim in... Uh, I'm sure there are. Uh, don't get me wrong. I'm sure there are. There's, you know, after Israel, New York is the largest place for uh, New York and then New Jersey and then probably California. The tri-state area is the second largest place where all the religious Jews are and I'm sure there are many, many righteous people that do have the ability. Do I know somebody who's on that level that could give a bracha? I'm sure there's some rebbes out there that they, they have it, but I, I, you know, I, I don't know who to recommend. If you do know somebody, please share it over. Okay, next question. 
if it is so that it could come in both ways, why did the first two parts, will the 102 come in a physical aspect? So, okay, so this is a little bit of a slightly different uh, question on the Gogumagog aspect. So, um, what you're probably referring to is part what came up from the Chafetz Chaim, if I'm not mistaken, that said that Gogumagog is going to be a three-part war. Part one is World War One. part two is World War Two, and then part three is the, is the final part, which will hopefully not be World War Three, but what, you know, we'll see what, what, how it comes out. So in, in an aspect of why did it happen, is, uh, is definitely, we're definitely in the ikvas of the Mashiach. We're definitely in the time of Mashiach. And there's definitely things that are moving. And even though that we still had, you know, part of Gogumago, you know, kind of, you know, start or, or kind of the, the, the beginning aspects of Mashiach, we're definitely in the ikvas of the Mashiach, we still have the ability to go and avoid a lot of the badness by doing tshuva, by following the Torah, and by doing things that we're supposed to do. So even though it, it is physical, and the regular understanding of it is a physical, but there is a way to, in, the, in the more in the spiritual side. Next question is, could be this war that's going on? Could it be Gogumagog? It could be. I don't know. Okay. Um... Okay, thank you for all the kind words. Next question. I heard that in the time of Mashiach, the kahuna will go back to Bukhayim. Is this a true thing? If so, why don't we go back to the... If so, why won't the Menima go back to Reuben? Okay, I'm sorry, I don't understand that question. You're going to have to uh, repeat that question. Okay, next question. How come in previous generations, some Sadiqim knew the 36-headed Sadiqim, but nowadays the humans, uh, or the Chachamim, don't? I believe that's Chachamim. So, so... 30, there are okay. So what we're understanding over here is, is there's 36 hidden uh, tzaddikim in every generation. Uh, the key word here is hidden. So uh, even though there are some people that know of the tzaddikim, I don't know if there's one person that knows all the 36 tzaddikim. Maybe maybe the gedolei know who all the 36 tzaddikim are, but generally hidden means that they are uh, they are hidden. I don't know. Maybe there is a, maybe there's an idea that that you know the gedolei know. I don't know. Okay. Next question. Russia is uh, a like question. Russia is getting rid of bioweapon labs and the Nazis in Ukraine. Okay, I'm not following. I'm not big into the news, uh, so I don't know exactly what's going on. I do know that there's something uh, brewing over there, but I don't know the reasons or the background, so I can't comment on that. Next, I think I heard that something is written in Sefer Yechazkel about what is supposedly might be Russia, that when the Russians' boats go into France water, we should put on our Shabbos clothes on former Shia. Yes, that is something. I, again, I don't remember if it was the Russian, uh, the the Fran- French waters, but I I also recall something, uh, you know, along those lines. I didn't have a chance to look it up, uh, and it was funny because that was something that came into my mind when I heard about this. I'm like, no, I remember something about that. I should really look into it. I didn't have a chance to uh, to look into it yet. Uh, okay, next question. Do you have a class in schoolers to have children? No, I don't have a class. That's an interesting one. That's an interesting one. Okay. Next, if someone requires a bracha, perhaps you can go to Chief Rabbi Eliyahu ben Chaim in Queens. You can Google it. Yeah, I met Rabbi Eliyahu ben Chaim. He's a, he's a you know, big tzaddik, big tamik chacham. Definitely could go to him. Okay, um, oh. Rabbi, um, what did the Rav say about um, regarding um, the, if Russia goes on French waters? I wasn't sure I fully understood what the Rav said. So I don't... Uh, the question was if, if, if that's... Um, let me read back to the question. Something about if that was a Gogumagog, was that a part of the Mashiach process? There is something. There is something that I recall, and I'd have to look it up. And the, uh, something about Russia in regards to Gogumagog. There is something along those lines. I just don't recall the details, so it's hard for me to say. I'd have to look into it and and to to see. So I can't say one way or the other if it's referring to something, uh, something in particular. Okay. 
Uh, also off topic, what is the obligation to rebuke with Lashon Hara? Like, let's say I'm in a conversation and I know that it's Lashon Hara. Must I say so or can I just leave the conversation because I think it will stop Lashon Hara right there, but everyone will stop listening to me eventually. So that's a good question. This is a, this is a question more on on uh, also also rebuking. But if someone's speaking Lashon Hara, you should say, hey, guys, you know, this is, you shouldn't stop. You should stop speaking about it that, and then move away. That's the right thing. That's the right thing to say. Um, okay, next. If a person has an obligation to anticipate Yeshua, how is it that someone can go every day fully believing that Mashiach is coming? How is that not extremely emotionally draining? Uh, that's a good question. So how is it emotionally... So, so that's a good question. I, you know, like, it, one of the animamins, you have to believe that Mashiach is coming. This is, this is the fundamental belief of, of uh, Yiddishkeit. So, um, you know, how could it be that it's not emotionally draining... You're, you're, the reason why it's such a good question because if someone really fully believes it on the highest level possible, then it, you would think about it that they get let down every single night. Every single morning they're like, okay, well, Mashiach's coming today. And then every single night they're like, well, how did it not happen? Yet, there's something very interesting is that there is a balance that you're supposed to have it. And even if I'm not mistaken, I believe it was the Chafetz Chaim who had a, a go-bag. And there's many that they can have a go-bag packed for for Mashiach to come. And like Mashiach comes, they're able to go and just bounce straight to Eretz Yisrael. So there is a level where you have to believe it in every single day. And if it's not, then you have a new mission that starts the next day. But I think the emotionally draining is a more, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's not a good answer. I'm not satisfied with the answer I just gave you. But I'm going to leave it with that answer because we have a few more questions and it's getting a little late. Um, yes. So about the question I asked before, sorry, other correct kind of crux in my answer, but um, the question was, I heard that with the uh, when Mashiach comes, the like Kahuna and like working in the base of Mikdash will go back to the Bechorim. Um, is this true? Does this have any like validity? So there is, yeah, there is an aspect of that. If my recollection serves me correctly, yes, there's 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 a lot of things that will change when Mashiach comes. Also to the point of of you know. Right now, we go according to, I don't know, to the level of your, um, of your understanding of this, it, like in the background of this, but right now we go a lot with like base Hillel. Uh, and in the time, of, base Hillel was more of, of a lenient type of view um, in the halachic aspect in the, Mish- in the time of the Mishnah. And then there was base Shammai, which is a more of a stringent view. Uh, nowadays, we go according to base Hillel in most cases. In the time of Mashiach, would also be, you know, there's an opinion that it says also we're going to be we're going to revert to to the time of uh, um, of Beis Shammai to go according to the Beis Shammai. So there is going to be changes in it. Um, the aspect of the aspect of the Bechorim that I remember reading that somewhere. I remember reading that somewhere, but I don't remember the source off the top of my head. Just um, also, if so, then why wouldn't it go back to like Reuven who originally had the like Brunan Malucha? Why wouldn't it be? Because uh, the time of when the Beis Hamikdash started—that's way—that's the way that it uh, um, was. Well, oh, you mean the whole shape at Rubin? Yeah, I'm saying like, you know, since of the Faith uh, of Egal, that's why the Kuna went to the Levian because they didn't do it. But if they're getting uh, atoned for that, wouldn't Rubin be atoned for whatever he did? Interesting. Interesting. That's a good question. I would have. I have an answer, but I don't want to say it until I look it up. And it has to be with why the Bukharim lost it. But it's a good question. I don't know. You got to look more into that. 
And also with the tzaddikim that I asked the person that was me also, um, I wanted to know like back in the day when we had greatest um, tzaddikim or whatever, like they knew who were the 36 hidden tzaddikim were and they sent like people to get breakfast. We have like stories and everything. But nowadays, like we have amazing rabbis, of course, and they're on our level. But is there a reason why they don't know the 36 tzaddikim? So there are. So okay. So so let's break that question up. The it, let's go for example in the time of Arizal. The Arizal was on a level unparalleled to like you know many many people in his generation and also in in the some previous generations to him as well. He was able to see everybody in their previous life. So yes, you had that, and you have tzaddikim that were able to go and say go to this person and give him a special a special bracha. But to say that in previous even in previous generations, two three hundred years ago, that the gedolim knew all the thirty six hidden tzaddikim. I don't know. Maybe I, I've never seen the source of that, so I, I can't say one way or another. Yeah, definitely knew a few. There yeah, a few oh, a few for sure. Yeah, even nowadays, they're, they're, I'm sure that they're aware of like a few. Like you know, people know tzaddikim. You know, it's it's hidden from the public, but not from people in in let's say in the rabbi world. There, there's you know, there, there's news that goes around of like righteous people. Um, so so yeah, I would say even nowadays, I, I don't see why that would change. And then one quick side question. I know that the like. The tzaddikim of nowadays are like compared to our like they're on our level, so like we don't have the chavetz chaim because we're not on his level to have him. But um, does that also go for the thirty-six hidden tzaddikim? Because since they're hidden, they're not like interacting with us as much. So are they on their own level, or are they also on our level? I'm saying like, are you saying that are the tzaddikim on a lower level nowadays than they were in the previous days? What I'm saying is, like, the Godzilla Lai Hardar, we know that they, they get, the more, lower generations we get, the lower, like, spirituality that they can attain or reach to or whatever, like, we don't have the Chavetz Chaim, we don't have the Arizal, like you said, but does that also work, work with the 36 Tzaddikim because they're not, like, always interacting with us because they're hidden? So is your question that, are the 36 Tzaddikim more hidden or their power or influence is less? I'm asking if their like level of amuna it could um, be higher than what the gadolahedar are because they're hidden. What do you mean by their level of amuna? I'm sorry that I was just not. What do you mean their level of amuna could be higher? Meaning that our level should be higher for the hidden tzaddikim? No, what I'm saying is compared to the level of the generation that tzaddik is in is the level of right. the, the tzaddik. So is that also the same for the thirty six tzaddikim? Oh yeah, yeah. It's all, generally it's on the same. Uh, um, it's on the the same aspect. Not to say that people can reach an extremely extremely high level, but generally, yeah, yeah. There is a yuridus adiris in that aspect. Thank you. That's why we listen to the rabbis of the previous generation. That's why Rishonim, There's different levels, especially in halachic, that actually comes into very very practical uh, applications. Okay. Next, should uh, a few more questions that are coming in, so we'll try to answer it really quickly now because it's getting a little bit late. Should we fear what is happening with this war? Technically, any war is not good, and the way that it works is when you, especially when you're dealing with, again, I'm not well versed in what's going on in the politics and you know all this stuff, but whenever you're dealing with a war with somebody who has a nuclear power, and then there's other people that are going onto the other side, it's uh, it's it's always dangerous. So, is there something to fear? Definitely Dalvin. 
That was all I could tell you. Hopefully nothing to fear, but listen, there's definitely there's Jews in, in Ukraine. Um, I hope that they're getting out, uh, you know, or they got out, but it's not, a, uh, it's not a fun situation, and we should definitely fear for them, if not for us. Next, for having children, there is something to say. Thank you, Hashem, for not having children. Okay, a different school of for, for gratitude. Yes, we're not going to get into that. That's just a simple school of for anything. It's just being grateful. Uh, no, okay, fine. Um, okay, next. Let's try to go just to the question. I know that one shouldn't daven for a specific shidduch, but once a person is engaged or married, should we daven that it should work out? Married, definitely. Engaged is a good question. Maybe, yeah. You know, that's a, that's a good question. I would probably say probably. Marry definitely. Okay, next. I went to. I want to reach high levels in my spiritual and spirituality, l'shem shemayim, to the best of my ability, Bezat Hashem. Not because I know that Mashiach is coming soon. I want to hop on the train, but I feel like that's starting to come into the front of my mind now in the Russian-Ukraine conflict. What could I do? So, if you're striving to become better, and then there is sort of a catalyst that helps you become better faster. I don't know, even though it's, yeah, you want to do L'Shem Shemayim, but I don't see that as a bad thing. You know, that's that's like somebody, like it's obviously not the same, but imagine somebody that goes and says, you know what, this particular speaker really, you know, encourages me and really makes me want to be better, but then I'm becoming better because of, you know, this inspiration. Maybe I shouldn't get inspired and I should work on myself and become better without inspiration. But the answer is, of course not. You should get inspiration. And if you're getting inspiration because of the situation, by all means, that's good. That's the right way that you should do. Okay, next. Uh, Rabbi, are we permitted to rebuke if we don't know if the recipient will listen? I've heard somewhere that we are not. Okay. Uh, yeah, so there is a whole level of, to, uh, you know, rebuke. Again, for if you do want to get, we gave a whole hour class more on this, on this rebuke thing. Um, so I would recommend that. But uh, in general, if you know 100% sure, that's a different story. But generally, you, you think probably they won't listen. But you should definitely say, hey guys, this is, this is Lashon Hara, you really shouldn't be speaking about it, and then walk away. You don't have to be over there and be like, in their face, and be like, oh, I hear you're saying this. I think you should give that information, and in the most respectful, nice way possible, not like in a mean, aggressive type of way. Where are we over here? Okay, <laughs> what should we pack in a Mashiach bag? Practically, how long would it take to reach out to Israel, and what do we have, what do we need to have on hand? That's a good question. Mashiach go-to bag. It'll probably be a good business, right? Sell, you know, pre-packaged. Now they, they sell these pre-packaged uh, food things that you could take with you. You could start a business of pre-packaged Mashiach, uh, you, know, ha- you know, luggage. Um, uh, what should you pack? You know, things that you need for <laughs> until you're able to buy new things, uh, you know, with that. And again, where is, um, you know, like, how, do, how long will it take to get to Israel? It's a question that I don't know if anybody can answer. It depends on so many things. Um, and that's why people are moving on to Eretz Israel now, because they feel like the end is coming and they'd rather be there, because they don't know how long it will take to have millions and millions of Jews all over the world trying to fly into Israel. Okay. If Oh, we're almost done. Look at that. Okay, if anyone is trying to... Okay, never mind. Uh, thank you so much. Okay, wow, just received... Uh, okay, fine. Very good. And there... Yes, thank you very much for posting that there's a sherry about rebuke for whoever was asking over there. Okay. So that was all the questions. Thank you all for joining. Until next week, may you all have an amazing, amazing, successful week. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.